Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 137, and it's the third, fourth, actually, in a little mini-series on Tudor London. This one focuses on the suburbs to the north of the city. You can get show notes for this episode at englandcast.com slash northern suburbs. I'm getting very specific here, right? It's not just suburbs, it's northern suburbs. But there's so much to talk about. I tried doing a whole episode just on all of the suburbs, and, you know, Hampstead and Highgate and Hackney and Islington, are worth a whole episode on their own. So here we are. But first, I just want to remind you about TudorCon. You can still get early bird tickets until January the 7th. It saves you $50 off the price. So if you want to come spend three days learning from authors and historians like Nathan Amin and Brigitte Webster, who runs the Tudor and 17th century experience in London, well, England, it's not London, Um, and other amazing historians, authors, speakers, and you want to hang out with fellow Tudor enthusiasts and party like it's 1509. Actually, I should say party like it's 1520. We should do like a field of cloth of gold um, theme since it's the 500th anniversary. That would be fun. Um, We form new friendships, learn together, go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020 to learn more englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020. So this is another episode about Tudor London, specifically what 16th century London was like for our Tudor friends. Like I said, this is the fourth episode in what is a mini series feature on life in 16th century London. So if you go to the website to the archive, you can get the other three episodes. First, we talked about St. Paul's and the booksellers. Then we talked about the bridges and rivers. Then we talked about the strand and the walk, the city gates, and then the walk down to Westminster. And now we are talking about further afield. So today we're going to talk about the suburbs, places like Islington, Hampstead, Hackney, which are now woven into greater London, those areas that might be zone two or three on the transport map, but are a huge part of the life of the city now. Back during the Tudor period, they were their own separate towns, the villages that made up the suburbs outside of the city, And particularly, like I said in this episode, on the northern edge of the city. So let's start by talking about Islington. Now Islington is popular with cool, chic intellectuals. It's about a 45-minute walk from the very center of London. And while the borough itself only came into being officially in 1965, its origins are much older. So it's actually mentioned in the Domesday Book, 
from the 11th century, and also in an earlier Anglo-Saxon charter. According to one early writer, it was a savage place, a forest full of lairs and wild beasts, where bears and wild bulls roamed. The main reason for its growth was that it became an overnight stop for the cattle on their ways to the markets at Smithfield. Most of the land belonged to the church at that point. It also provided water supply for the Carthusian monks at Charterhouse as early as the 1430s. Now, during the dissolution of the monasteries, the land was given to the aristocratic families, and it grew along Upper Street and what is now Essex Road. The aristocracy built moated manor houses, and soon enough farmland developed, and the area gained a reputation for its dairy herds, which provided London with dairy necessities like milk and cream and butter. There were also brick-making kilns there, which during the Tudor period provided warmth for the thieves who also lived in the area. It was an area full of bandits. Because it was outside the jurisdiction of the city, but close enough for a nice walk, the theatres also grew up in this area, including the Saracen's Head. And along with the theatres, also pubs grew. And by 1590, there were nine pubs in Islington. That tradition of theatre still exists today with the famous Sadler's Wells Theatre. A statue of Sir Hugh Middleton stands on the green today. That's a tribute to the Tudor architect behind the New River, which opened in 1613, and brought fresh water to the capital from the River Lee. While the New River terminates near here and still flows today, some of it now runs underground, covered by the Canterbury Gardens and housing. Another famous London waterway, Regent's Canal, also passes under Islington for more than half a mile. So remember in the episode where we talked about all the different rivers, this this is an example of one of those rivers that has now gone underground, but during the Tudor period would have been flowing through the countryside. If we move to the north just a little bit, we will find ourselves in Hackney. So nowadays, Hackney is known for flower markets, the green and the canal walks. But in the Tudor period, Hackney was made up of three distinct parishes. There was Hackney itself, and then Stoke Newington and Shoreditch. Shoreditch was just on the edge of the City of London. It was home to two theatres, as well as being the home of a very up-and-coming playwright you may have heard of, William Shakespeare. 75 years later, Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary in the mid-17th century that he grew more and more in love with Hackney every day. He enjoyed riding out in a coach, and he rode away into the fields to Hackney to take the air, it being hot and stuffy in the city. One of the main streets in Hackney is Kingsland Road. Now, that was originally part of the Roman Ermine Street, which connected London to York. And so it's actually one of the straightest roads in London. And there's also place names that tell you more about the history of Hackney. You can find names like Boleyn Road, Woolsey Road, and King Henry's Walk, all, of course, taking you back to the history of the village. Dr. Matthew Green wrote a book, which I recommend, and you can get a link to it in the show notes, called London, A Travel Guide Through Time. And he wrote in The Telegraph, the Tudor upper crust was drawn to Hackney for holidays, hunting, and sometimes matters of high state. At King's Palace, which was later Brookhouse in Clapton, Henry VIII reconciled with his daughter, that was Mary I, after five frosty years he had, after all, divorced her mother and cut her out of the succession. Tragically, the building was ripped down by Hackney Council in the 1950s. At Church House, opposite the medieval church of St. Augustine's, of which only the tower remains today, it is the oldest building in Hackney, Tudor ministers entertained intellectual superstars Erasmus and Thomas More. So that's from Dr. Matthew Green. You should check out his book. Like I said, I linked to it in the show notes at englandcast.com slash northern suburbs. See how I worked that in there. 
Hackney was a pleasant escape from the plague as well. This was a period when the Bills of Mortality report would list upwards of 500 deaths a week in places like Stepney, Whitechapel, and St. Giles, which were also outside the city walls. But Hackney never had more than 18 deaths, and generally it was less than 10. So it's for this reason that the aristocrats would flock to Hackney during the plague outbreaks. Hackney is also remembered for a very random sport that they invented. Now, before I tell you about it, remember that this is the era of bear baiting and all kinds of stuff that we would really frown upon today that would actually be illegal today. But we have to remember we can't put our modern judgments and sensibilities on it. This is something I think about a lot because I happen to think personally that in another 100 or 150 years, people are going to look back on us and the way we treated animals in the meat industry and the dairy industry with like a lot of judgments. But, you know, that's our modern sensibility. So you don't want to judge people from the past based on our modern viewpoints, just like I don't want to be judged from people 200 years from now. Okay, so moving on, this game that they would play was called pig swinging. So the point is, you take it in turns to grease the tail of a pig, and then you swing said pig around your head. Whoever can do this the longest wins a prize, generally an alcoholic prize, and then if you actually can send the pig flying, the prize goes up considerably. What generally happened was that the poor pig would be released into the face or chest of one of the crowd of watchers. And then things would get kind of crazy for a time while everybody tried to catch the pig and check to make sure that the person was okay. And then they'd regrace the tail and we are back off to the races for a second time. This activity actually happened almost, well, pretty much every week after church. It was great fun in Hackney. So good times. Speaking of church, Hackney has one right in the middle of the villages of the area. And like I said, these villages all around Hackney become a who's who of Tudor aristocracy because of the air and the proximity to Henry's hunting lodges. So I want to move to the west a bit now to Highgate and Hampstead. So I actually lived in Highgate for a while. This area is very special to me. And those of you who have ever studied the London Underground map will note that Hampstead and Highgate are pretty much parallel on two different branches of the Northern Line. And what's in the middle there is the Hampstead Heath, which has ponds that were once the start of the water supply for much of the western part of London. So Highgate actually was next to the Bishop of London's hunting estate. It's atop a 426-foot hill. It gets its names from these hunting grounds. There was a high deer-proof hedge surrounding the estate. So the bishop kept a toll house where one of the main northern roads out of London entered his land, and that was built sometime before 1354, and that was the first time the name Highgate was actually recorded. There were a number of pubs that sprang up around this route. Again, it was a good place, kind of a day's ride right outside of London where you could stop, and one of which, the gatehouse, still exists and commemorates that toll house. Later in the 14th century, Dick Whittington is said to have sat on a mile marker on Highgate Hill on his way back to the family home in Gloucestershire. He was inspired by the distant sounds of the bells of London. He turned back again and found fame and fortune in London, eventually becoming its Lord Mayor. There's a replica stone marking the alleged spot, and on top of that is a 1964 statue of Whittington's cat, which, according to the lore surrounding Dick Whittington, he sold to a rat-infested town as a way to earn money very early on, showing his entrepreneurial spirit. Hampstead Lane and Highgate Hill actually contain the red brick Victorian buildings of Highgate School and the Chapel of St. Michael. 
So that school has played an important role in the life of Highgate Village, and it has existed on this site since its founding in 1565, which on the 29th of January was when Queen Elizabeth granted letters patent to her well-beloved and faithful subject, Sir Roger Cholmley, to found a grammar school for the most liberal education and instruction of the boys and young men around Highgate. The first pupils were instructed in Latin and Greek and religion, according to what was then the teaching of the Church of England. So let's walk through the Highgate Village and onto the Hampstead Heath, which, like so many other people in London, is one of my favorite walking spots. And I have very fond memories of walking around here with my BFF, Shandor, who now listens to this show. Hi, Shandor and flying kites on Kite Hill. So the heath is actually one of the highest points in London. It runs from Hampstead to Highgate, and it first enters into the history of London in 986. This was when Ethelred the Unready granted one of his servants five hides of land at Hempstead. The same land is later recorded in the Domesday Book of 1086, and it was held by the Monastery of St. Peter's at Westminster Abbey, Then it was known as the Manor of Hampstead. Westminster held the land until 1133, when control of part of the manor was released to a Richard de la Balta. And then during Henry II's reign, the whole of the manor became privately owned by the king's butler, who was named Alexander de Bereton. Hampstead and Highgate are both known for their mineral waters, and we see that in the ponds on the heath. Running along its eastern perimeter are a chain of ponds, including three open-air swimming pools, which were originally reservoirs for drinking water from the River Fleet. Again, one of those rivers we talked about. The Heath and Hampstead Society have actually identified over 800 old trees on the Heath, some of which are over 500 years old. And the existence of some of these rare wild service trees indicates that it was once an ancient woodland as well. There are two other things about the Heath that I want to mention. First, supposedly Boudicca is buried there. While Boudicca, the queen of the Iceni, is way before our time, she is relevant because for centuries people debated about where Boudicca is buried, and of course Elizabeth I, being England's Gloriana, often would refer back to Boudicca and reference Boudicca in her own reign. There's a large mound on the heath which is supposedly where Boudicca is buried, though archaeological digs haven't ever found any evidence of that. Still, regularly, some druids will put a wreath on the mound in commemoration of her. And the next relevant thing I want to mention is about Parliament Hill. It's a 320-foot high hill with the best views of London, views which are actually now protected by law, so you're not allowed to build skyscrapers or buildings that interfere with the view. I mentioned before that the heath was part of this manor and Parliament Hill was part of that as well, this manor that Henry I gave to a baron called Richard de la Balta. And then during Henry II's reign, it was part of that land that went to the king's butler, who owned all of the heath. And the area was known as Traitor's Hill, and it may have acquired its name during the English Civil War in the mid-17th century, when it was occupied by troops loyal to the English Parliament. But how it relates to our time period is that there's a legend that this was the site from where Guy Fawkes and Robert Catesby of Gunpowder Plot fame planned to watch the destruction of Parliament. The view really is stunning. It would have been the best place to be able to watch the destruction and then ride away very quickly. So now let's walk out of the Heath and into Hampstead. Hampstead is about four miles from Charing Cross Station, the heart of London. It comes from the Anglo-Saxon word ham and stead, which means and is a cognate of the modern English homestead. 
There's a well called King's Well, which is right in the heart of Old Town. It's probably associated with the town pond west of the high street in which a woman drowned in 1274. And it gave its name to the Kingswell family in the late 13th century. And then medieval tenants were in the area during the medieval period. And like I said, the land all belonged to the church. But by the 15th century, many of these had passed to London merchants and gentry. Some of these merchants and their families began to live in these homes on this land or lease it, especially for the summer when they would leave London and go out of town or when they retired. One thing that was popular as well was for the wives and widows of some of these merchants to live in Hampstead. So a lot of times the men would wind up commuting back and forth to Hampstead, or once the women became widowed, they would move out of town completely. And these merchants and their families replaced the medieval homes of timber and wattle and daub with brick houses. They were often really large. One was the curiously named Chicken House, which is on the east side of High Street, which contained glass commemorating a visit by James I and the Duke of Buckingham in 1619. Hampstead, which is on this high ground visible from London, these twin hills of Hampstead and Highgate, may always have represented health to the citizens of London looking up at these hills. In 1349, the Abbot of Westminster fled there to escape the Black Death, but unfortunately, he brought the Black Death with him. In 1524, Londoners actually sought safety on Hampstead's Hills from a flood that was threatened. They ran up there. And then in the late 16th century, topographers remarked on the fine views and very healthful air of Hampstead. In the plague of 1603, Sir William Wadd, who lived at Belsize, right near, wrote of people coming from town and dying under hedges, whereof we have experienced weekly here at Hampstead. So that's unfortunate. But we start to get this picture of these little villages off in the north of London being these dairy farms, places with this really clean air, just a ride, a day's ride or so away. So it was a place where there were inns and hotels, but also, you know, this kind of pastoral farmland where people could walk out um, for a day, places like Islington where you could walk out or where people would go to escape the heat and the plague especially in the summer. So that's it for this week. Like I said, the book recommendation is called London, A Travel Guide Through Time by Matthew Green. And I have links in the show notes at englandcast.com slash northern suburbs. Remember to get your TudorCon tickets before January 7th when the price is going up. Uh, englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2020. And you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be back soon. <laughs> Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandful may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrieg, at soli semlis on seat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.